0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Running the Race podcast. RTR is a ministry of First Baptist Church of Gonzales, Louisiana, and strives to provide a pastoral perspective on living the Christian life in our day. To learn more about who we are and what we believe, head over to our website, www.fbcg.net. You can access more episodes of the podcast, view or listen to sermons or worship services, or explore some of the other resources we have available on the site. In today's episode, our minister to students, Alex Ray, interviews Dr. Douglas Grutheis. Dr. Grootheis is a Christian philosopher and apologist who teaches at Denver Seminary. Dr. Grootheis has recently published the book, Fire in the Streets, How You Can Confidently Respond to Incendiary Cultural Topics. You may notice some changes in audio quality as today's interview was conducted via Zoom.
1: Hi, Dr. Grootheis. Thanks for being with us here today.
2: Well, you're very welcome. Glad to be here.
1: Uh, the first thing I wanted to really ask you was: you you made um, you know, the last number of years, several years of your life, really been focusing on apologetics, and I was just wondering why, what got you started in apologetics out of out of all the fields that you could have right? Learned,
2: why well, All my yeah, all my education is in philosophy, but shortly after I converted to Christianity in 1976, I. Realized I needed to know how to think as a Christian. I needed to understand the Bible's view of the world and how that related to other worldviews. And the person that really got me started more than anybody was Francis Schaeffer, his book, The God Who Was There. So I devoured all of his books, started reading great apologists like C.S. Lewis and James Sire. I read a lot of Os Guinness for cultural apologetics and social critique. So that was way back in 1976 and ended up pursuing three degrees in philosophy. Did 12 years of campus ministry before I came to Denver Seminary, where I've served since 1993.
1: Very nice. Very nice. What would you say um, if you had to give one Francis Schaeffer book for someone to read? What would you say it is?
2: Well, the book that really ignited me for apologetics and social criticism was his book called "The God Who Is There"?
1: That's which right. Came out
2: in 1968. So some of the cultural examples he gives might not be pertinent to everyone, but the method and the heart is certainly germane to our own situation. I often go back and reread that book for the content, but also just for the spirit. He had a a, a prophets and pastors' heart for mm-hmm. the world, and he had an apologetic skill in doing it. That's rare. Did you combine the prophetic, the pastoral, and the apologetic? And he was able to do that. So I never met Francis Schaeffer, but I call him the mentor I never met because I read all of his books, listened to as many recordings as I could. Back in the day, it was tapes. You know, we listened yeah. to tapes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I remember reading um, Whatever Happened to the Human Race uh, with Coop, and that one really stuck out to me, mm-hmm. especially given how um, – not a recent book
2: it's just thinking about how pressing it was and and And, yeah that book was co-written with a medical doctor c ever coop who went on to become surgeon general under ronald reagan he had been a long-term friend of the schaefer family and that was the book which came out in 79 that really made me pro-life and he realized that a non-christian view does not protect human life at every stage, particularly a humanistic or secular worldview. So mm-hmm. Christians need to be on the forefront of protecting the dignity of human life at every stage, unborn, right. born, however ill, however close to death. We need to be advocates for human beings because they, we bear the image and likeness of God and we are not to be murdered. Thou shalt not murder. Right. So that mm-hmm. book really opened my eyes. I'd been a Christian for about three years at that time, but really didn't understand the abortion issue too well. But that was the book that really got my attention. And I've been militantly and activistically pro-life ever since.
1: Very nice. When I think about someone who's maybe carried on um, Schaefer's legacy, someone like like Nancy Piercy, who I think I actually read her work first, and I, and I noticed she was quoting Schaefer a lot, and then she had the two-story divide that she that she took from him, and she uh, she mentioned that uh, framework quite a lot in her books.
2: Yes, yeah, she's a very good writer, and she, I think, became a Christian through the ministry of Francis Schaefer at Le Brie mm-hmm. in the Swiss Alps. She's written a number of books, and she's carried on his kind of uh, social cultural criticism and apologetics. I really appreciate her work a lot.
1: So when it comes to apologetics, would you say that you favor, there's, there's a number of different ways to go about it, and you, meant, you kind of alluded to some just a moment ago, but would you say that you favor one one position more than another? I know you just came out with another book uh, very recently, um, but would you say you favor one towards the other? or?
2: Well, the method that I use and that my co-author and I use, I, if I can hold up the book, this is uh, the newest book I co-wrote with Andrew Shepherdson, The Knowledge of God, You could either call it classical apologetics or a version of a cumulative case argument. It depends on what angle you come to it from. So, the classical method says, let's look at the universe and human consciousness and ask what best explains what is there and who we are. Mm -hmm. So, you use natural theology to argue for a creator and a designer, a lawgiver, and so on. And then you ask, as this God who created and designed the universe, who is the source of the moral law, also revealed himself in history. So that's where you go to scripture. So you can view it in terms of a two-stage approach. You build the foundation of Christian theism against atheism or pantheism or polytheism. And then, of course, Christianity is a form of theism, as is Islam and Judaism. And you say, well, what is it about the Bible's claims, the claims of Jesus, that singles Christianity out of the crowd. So you could view it as a two-stage, you have theism, then you have Christian evidences, or you could just view it as multiple lines of evidence that converge on the Christian worldview as being true and rational. You can really approach it either way.
1: Yeah, I found that when I when I speak with someone who might call themselves a skeptic, they will, in some cases, they'll just say, you know, I don't believe Christianity makes this claim. I reject that claim, and then they'll just leave it there. They don't really provide an alternative, and I think that's um, I think that's that's necessary. If they're going to reject it, they need to come up with an alternative explanation for any whatever the issue might yeah. be.
2: Well, if you're going to be intellectually serious and curious about things the way I like to do apologetics is by comparing worldviews. So everyone has a worldview, a basic account of life, the meaning of life, the basis of morality, what happens at death, the meaning of history. Those are worldview questions. And the way I approach defending Christianity is to present the Christian worldview over and against an atheistic worldview, pantheistic worldview, Islamic worldview, and so on. So someone could take a pot shot at Christianity And maybe talk about the problem of evil. How can God be all good and all powerful when there's so much evil? And there are good answers to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, God is the source of what's good. God can bring good out of evil. We see that most brilliantly in the person of Christ. So we have responses to it. I have two chapters on it in my big thick apologetics book. But -hmm. we can also say to the unbeliever, well, how do you understand evil? What is the meaning of evil? Do you have hope that evil will ever be overcome? So you're not... Dodging the objection, you're giving an answer, but then you're saying, if you want to be a rational person, if you want to have a reasonable account of reality, you should think of an alternative. If you reject the Christian view, do you have anything that's better? And if they just say, well, whatever, who cares? I'm just a skeptic. I'd say, well, maybe you want to get a little more busy here because (laughs) uh, Christianity makes some very profound claims about well being and about the loss of well-being, for eternity. So if Christianity is true. You would want to know it because you have everything to gain. And yes, you will have to deny yourself and follow Christ, but it is infinitely worthwhile. So there what I'm factoring in is related to what's called Pascal's Wager, mm-hmm. or what I like to call the prudential incentives to believe. So if the skeptic says, well, I don't really care, nobody really knows anything, I'd say you should care uh, because there's a man who came to earth <laughs> 2,000 years ago who said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and said he had eternal life to give those who would follow him. And his teachings have influenced the world more than anybody else. Aren't you at least a little bit curious about what he said? And shouldn't you ask the question, or not he could have been who the Bible says he is? -hmm. So, you want to give people incentive to investigate. We can have the best arguments in the world, and we have tremendous apologetic arguments. I wrote a huge book about it, and then I co wrote another smaller book about it. And I've been doing apologetics now for almost 50 years. But we've got to get people interested. You can have big books on the shelf, and if nobody knows the arguments, then they don't do a lot of good. So, we need to pray that people will ask us why we believe. We need to seek out skeptics, seek out people in other religion, and ask religions and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in doing all that. Yeah,
1: and and then being able to ask good, open-ended question too. In, in addition, to all that to, right. to have to have the kind of conversation of respectful. You
2: know. Right. I teach apologetics at Denver Seminary, and I have for thirty years, and I lead an apologetics MA program there, which is fully online. If people are interested in that. One of the assignments I've always given is to ask a non-Christian. My students have to interview a non-Christian and ask them what their worldview is. So they ask them, what do you think the ultimate reality is? Who are we as human beings? Is there any hope for humanity? And then who do you think Jesus Christ is? And the students have been doing this now for three decades. It usually leads to profitable conversations. Mm -hmm. The students don't have to. Engage in apologetics or evangelism. I tell them to pray that they will, Mm -hmm. but they just need to listen to another person's worldview and then ask leading questions. And what often happens is the unbeliever's worldview is fairly inconsistent. That is, they don't really know what they believe about the ultimate reality of the human condition or the basis of morality or what happens in the afterlife. Or they might say A at one point and then deny A say non-A in another point. Right. And that's one of the most basic tests of a worldview is, is it internally consistent? Right? Are you saying one thing at one point in your worldview and then denying it at the next point? Well, if so, you've got to rethink your perspective.
1: Would you say that? So you've been doing this for thirty years. That that particular uh, assignment for thirty years. Would you say that the issues that maybe came up thirty years ago are significantly different, uh, or are they similar? Or maybe it's a little bit of both. Now,
2: well, yes, the worldview options remain the same. You basically have atheism, theism, uh, polytheism pantheism or agnosticism which is i don't know what's true so that remains the same basically but i think there's been an increase in intellectual apathy uh, where people don't care as much as they should mm-hmm. and of course uh this is this was around 30 years ago the postmodern view of truth but uh, especially now people talk about having my truth you have your truth i have my truth i think you see that even more now than you did maybe 30 years ago it's been around for a long time sure. so relativism yeah
1: yeah i remember speaking with a college student a few years back and we were walking through some some um a book together some material together and and he understood intellectually with the gospel is. he was raised in a, in a wonderful christian home and he just flat out told me that I I don't want to commit my life to that. I I understand it, but and maybe down the road I'll do it. But right now, I'm I'm fine where I am. And he was a brilliant uh, young man, uh, but it's just I think he had a little bit of that apathy that maybe you're, you're talking about. And, I, and that seemed to be maybe uh, com- a little bit more commonplace with some of the the college group, or maybe even teenage. I, I work predominantly with teenagers, and so it um, uh, that's not. Only to that aid group, but it does seem to come up quite a bit.
2: Well, I think also people are increasingly overwhelmed by information. They get a constant stream of images and factoids and slogans and sound bites and talking points and TikTok videos and video games. Right. And just slowing people down to think through their perspective on life mm-hmm. and to realize that it's serious that we are finite beings. We will die. We can lose everything in an instant, even though we think we're young and immortal or we don't want to think about it. Right. Slowing people down and getting people sobered up, so to speak, intellectually can be challenging. So mm-hmm. the arguments are there. We have the best answers to the deepest questions. But if mm-hmm. no one is asking the question or if people just are content to entertain themselves into oblivion, then the answers won't get through to them. That's a really significant part of apologetics is living the kind of life that makes people interested in what you believe and asking the kind of questions or being the kind of person that can stimulate discussion about these significant issues.
1: Sure, yeah. So when it comes, if you on that note, if you were to have a, a parent, like I mentioned, I work primarily with teenagers and college students, and say you were to have a parent come to you and say, "Dr. Grotz, I um, uh, wanted to reach out to my my child." What would you say is maybe if you could kind of distill into maybe two or three primary area area of interest or importance for a Generation Z? Yeah. Um, What what would you say those are?
2: Well, I think what's especially important now would be identity. Uh, Who are we? Gender identity. What does it mean to be a human being? Mm. And a lot of young people now are being overwhelmed with terrible messages that you can be whatever gender you want. And the genders just keep multiplying. Dozens and dozens and dozens. So it's a rebellion against the body. Nancy Piercy points this out in her book, Love by Body. It's a rebellion against any fixed order, biologically, morally, or spiritually. So I am just a, a free agent. I have an expressive self, and myself can determine whatever I want. And mm-hmm. that's simply not true. Every cell of our body is male or female. And God created male and female, and it created us to thrive in heterosexual families. But that's all being denied in the name of freedom in the name of expression and i'm sure you see this all the time with the young people you work with it's just on the front burner constantly you you can't avoid it
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i was just on youtube just uh yesterday and the, fr- the front banner uh on the right hand side on, under the um suggested videos it was a um lgbtq plus just banner right there like it had nothing to do i think it was about woodworking with the video i was looking at and it it's just yeah. right there it it's always out out in front of you and uh, i've been thinking a lot about how that's constantly uh and perpetually even mm-hmm. uh, marketed uh, toward teenagers and um through social media uh with your friends and it's very much a social contagion uh, aspect of it that is. as well
2: Oh, it is definitely. Uh, Abigail Schreier wrote a book. uh, What is it called? Damage? uh, Irreversible Damage. Yeah, about especially young girls are caught up in this social contagion to Mm -hmm. make a transition to being boys. And it's like an epidemic and it's carried by the internet, mostly by YouTube. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a cult. And what this has to do on a worldview level is deny that there is any sacred order that there are any imperatives upon us from God to live in a particular way that is consonant with our Constitution. So Mm -hmm. we're males or females, meaning we should live in a male way or a female way under the authority of God and in the grace of God. And this says, forget about God. Or if there's God, just make God kind of a subset of your interests Mm -hmm. and then pursue your identity. And you have a right to pursue your identity, whatever Mm -hmm. you want.
1: I think it was uh, Camille Paglia who said it in a much different context. I think she said something like fate has given us this body and we must deal with it as we see yes, fit. Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. It's like, there's no order in your body to use a philosophical word. There's no teleology. Right. Uh, there's no purpose. You look at a hammer. You say, well, it's meant to pound nails. Look at a screwdriver.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: meant to turn screws. Look at the human body. It's not meant for anything. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, although it's far more complex and sophisticated and wonderful than any machine anybody's ever made. But when it comes to the human body, the human self as a whole, this worldview says, I'm on my own. I determine and create my own values and there's no authority outside of me. So that question of moral authority over the body is a key question now, especially for uh, people under 30.
1: Right. I think another issue that seems to come up quite a bit um, for all ages, in particular, especially given uh, the last couple of years with the pandemic, is the nature of suffering and uh, the impact that it has uh, on our on our relationship to God, our our understanding rather uh, of God. And I know there's a number of arguments that you put forward in, in your in your work. Um, as far as understanding God's relationship to suffering, why He may or may not permit it, um, the free will defense, all those sorts of things, and those are all um, important. But one thing I really wanted to get your thoughts on—you wrote a whole book about this—was on the the topic of lament. And and until I read your your work on that. Uh, walking through twilight, that wasn't something I had, i had really spent much time thinking about. And so, how how would you describe lament, uh, particularly when it comes to the to the issue of suffering? Could you, could you right. could you flesh that out a little bit? Right.
2: Well, human beings suffer and struggle and give voice to this. Every culture has a language of complaint or lament, or in some cases even despair. So this is part of life under the sun, to put it. In the Ecclesiastes language, now the Christian view is that the world was created very good by a personal God, and it remains good although it has fallen. Sin has entered the world through the first humans, and that is carried down through the generations. So we come into the world as damaged goods. We are alienated from God. The world is under a curse, and so people die young. We have horrible tragedies of. Nature, and there's pettiness and jealousy and greed and rape and racism and all the rest of it. And one way is to say, well, life must be meaningless then, because look at all the evil. But that doesn't explain the good. Uh, You can only understand evil in relation to an antecedent and superior good. And that's what Christianity tells us in the beginning God created everything good, the world remains good, but human rebellion against God has created a world of of woe and suffering. So God entered that world personally in the first person. In Jesus Christ, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died for us to atone for our sin, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and has supremacy. And there are good arguments, powerful arguments for everything I just said. It's not just a blind leap of faith in the dark, it's nothing like that. So if you can believe that message, then you have a way to approach suffering that is true, rational, and wise. And the scripture talks quite a bit about lament. In fact, there are about 60 Psalms of lament in the book of Psalms. A lament is a heart cry to God in the face of suffering. It can include anger. It can verge on despair. It Hmm. definitely includes sadness. But it can be a prayer. That's the key thing. And Christianity is really rooted, in a sense, in lament, but it doesn't stay there because Christ on the cross quoted Psalm 22 and cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died to atone for our sin. He suffered and died for us vicariously, but he rose again from the dead with many convincing proofs demonstrating this. So the Bible has a place for suffering. We can commiserate in a sense or we can identify with christ in our suffering now he suffered in a way that we never can because he was the perfect sinless substitute on the cross but he gives meaning to suffering because we know because of the resurrection and the ascension and christ will come again to make all things right that suffering doesn't have the final word right but it's real and so if we want to be wise holy people We have to figure out how to suffer well. Suffering is a skill, actually, you have to learn. And there are a lot of ways of suffering badly, like through addiction, through denial, Mm -hmm. through despair. People commit suicide, tragically. But biblically, we have this key to suffer well before the face of God, and that's lament. So Mm -hmm. I wrote a book called Walking Through Twilight that you mentioned about my first wife and my the journey my first wife and I went through when she got dementia. And uh, that book is just full of scripture because there's so much in scripture pertaining to, uh, you might say, the psychology of suffering or the Mm -hmm. spirituality of suffering. Mm -hmm. And without having studied lament and having lived in those psalms of lament and without the book of Ecclesiastes, um. I really wouldn't have the resources. And and ultimately, without the suffering and resurrection of Christ, I would not have the resources to get through it. So on the one hand, you've got the problem of evil, which a lot of people think sinks Christianity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Because Christianity is the best answer to the problem of evil of all the worldviews. But the other side of that is that the Christian message in Scripture and the reality of Jesus Christ gives us The ability to suffer well, and eventually suffering will be taken away entirely in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. Mm -hmm. But right now, we have to learn to live well with suffering and also to comfort people well who are suffering. Mm -hmm. So nobody wants to suffer. I'm not talking about being masochistic and seeking out suffering, but there's certain suffering in this world that is unavoidable. And we can either suffer well through lament and through prayer, or we can suffer very badly. And there are any number of ways to do that. And I I know from experience (laughs) some of the bad ways to to suffer. But uh, we've got tremendous wisdom in the scriptures, but not only intellectual content that's beautifully put in Psalms and uh, in the teachings of Jesus, and in the book of Lamentations or Job, but the Holy Spirit living and active God to minister to us deeply, to teach us truth and to give us strength when we think we can't put one foot in front of another, mm-hmm. we do. And that Holy Spirit, the third person the Trinity, also gives us hope. And as Paul says in Romans 5, this hope, the hope of the gospel does not disappoint us. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And you know, I think uh, as well, just again, trying to think about e- explanatory power of the Christian worldview. This is another one I think is so uh, that, that that applies to because if we don't have the resurrection, then what hope do we have? And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, that if, if Christ hadn't been raised, then we, we of all people should be pitied uh, above everybody else. And
2: Right. And that's, you know, where Christianity sticks its neck out. It says Christ lived, he died, he rose from the dead if you didn't rise from the dead, the whole message is worthless and we're deceiving people and we're the most miserable of all people. It's not, well, here's this spiritual idea, see if you can resonate with it, you mm-hmm. know, visualize Jesus and if it makes you happy, that's fine. <laughs> no, this is space, time, history, events in history that redeem history. Right. That's what it's all about.
1: Right. I love how you put it in the book. You said that it, you said the darkness of the crucifixion is followed by the light of the resurrection. And I, I should come back to that again, come back to that truth over and over again. Whatever kind of suffering that we go through is that the the resurrection is the hope that we have. Uh, that we kind right. of- and he,
2: yeah, Hebrews tells us that Christ endured the shame of his suffering, looking ahead to the joy that was before him. So he had to go through the cross to get to the crown. Basically, no crown without the cross, but there is a crown. Uh, mm-hmm. Jesus is crowned with many crowns, and we will eventually know that reality as his redeemed creatures. I would often read to my first wife, Rebecca, passages from Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth, where there's no tears, no curse, or read passages in 1 Corinthians 15, will be raised immortal and in incorruptible bodies. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I worked hard at our worldview. She edited every word of my apologetics textbook, Christian Apologetics. We had worked through those issues for 30 years.
1: Yeah. So when
2: I would read those passages to her, it wasn't saying, well, here's some happy thoughts to get you through your struggle. So this is real, we can count on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I really appreciated um, your book, that that Walking Through Twilight, I very much. Um, I'd, I was reading and I kept thinking through C.S. to The Grief Observed. And that book had a much different tone than his problem of pain.
2: Yeah.
1: There are two two works in the problem of evil, but in the in the second one, it's, it's the guy who's speaking of it. And then the in the first one, uh, grief observed, the guy who's living it.
0: Right.
1: You mentioned social media uh, when it comes to um, some of the uh, social contagion issues going on. Um, but ha- what about social media as a whole in and of itself? Uh, it's neutral i mean in and of itself intrinsically is a neutral thing um but it seemed to be used for much more negative negative thing going on right now but how would you say that social media? What, what should our view be of that and specifically what i was thinking of was uh neil postman's book amusing ourselves to death uh, which was written i think in the 80s and the preface of that book i think is worth the price of the book alone and he mentioned in that book that uh, Orwell, he he contrast, uh, compares and contrasts Orwell and Huxley, and he says that Orwell said that all, he feared that all info would be kept uh, kept from us, so he wouldn't have any access to the information, but Huxley said kind of something what you said a little, a little while ago, which is that there's too much information, and we can't possibly know where to begin. Do you think one had it right over the other, or do, do both have their strengths?
2: Well, yeah, that is one of the best books I've ever read, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It, I think, came out in 1987. And that's really before the internet. But Postman's philosophy of technology was dead on. Mm-hmm. He was influenced quite a bit by Marshall McLuhan, but he also had his own ideas and was a very clear writer, much more clear than Marshall McLuhan was. Sure. I think what's happened is a sad combination of Orwell and Huxley, you know, Orwell in 1984 was worried about the authoritarian state that controlled everything and kept information from people and surveilled everyone. Mm-hmm. And Huxley, uh, so, or you think also of uh, Fahrenheit 451, where the books are burnt. And uh, in Huxley's Dystopia and Brave New World, the books are available, but nobody reads them, because they're so caught up with the feelies, you know, which is like virtual reality. You you go to the theater and you feel everything, you smell everything, you don't just see everything or hear everything. So I think it's kind of a combination. I think we face a lot of authoritarianism in our culture today through surveillance, uh, through trying to manipulate social media the way the Biden administration has manipulated Twitter and so on. So I think it's it's sort of a dystopia of, a, of the both and. We have this authoritarian control of certain information and then a flood of other kinds of information that we really don't know what to do with in a lot of ways. So I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years. Many years ago, I wrote a book called The Soul in Cyberspace. It came out in 1997, Baker. Now, this is before iPhones. This is before social media. But I was concerned about... Putting our entire life on the screen, I saw a downside to that. And one of the issues is how do you filter all this information coming at you wisely? And then secondly, we need embodied community. We need to be together in church, in fellowship groups, with our family, eating dinner together. We need unmediated time to really absorb and bless other people or make the image and likeness of God. And that is being replaced in so many ways by what one philosopher calls non-things. I uh, just discovered this interesting uh, Korean-born German philosopher named uh, Myung Chun Han. He's a fascinating guy, and he's got a book called Non-things. He said, a lot of our interaction today is really not with things, not with people, not with the environment. It's just images and data it's not like i know you are there where you live you are a thing so to speak you're a personal thing but right now i'm seeing an image right not really it's not the same as sitting down in a room and we'll probably meet in a few days in new orleans at the defend conference and that'll be so different because that'll be three-dimensional that'll involve all the senses Mm -hmm. but one thing we need to do is is ask ourselves which media work best for which purposes so right now the reason i'm doing this podcast is i think it would be beneficial to the people that listen i think it would be so i think it's worth doing but i would much rather talk to a group of people face to face and if i'm teaching a class sure i'll teach it online but i'd much rather talk to people face to face and then some uh Media just don't work for complicated issues. So for Twitter, I can't give you a detailed argument for the existence of God on Twitter. You've Mm -hmm. got to read a book or you've got to listen to one of my lectures or I could make a few points on Twitter why I think Christ rose from the dead. But you really need to read what I say about it or what William Wayne Craig says about it. I think that takes effort or, you know, Mike Lakota or somebody. So we've got to say, what does this medium do well, and what does it not do well? Mm -hmm. And that often gets lost in the shuffle because we're just online all the time. We want to have a presence, a platform. We want to be influencers. You know, you don't want to influence people unless you have something good to influence them with. And my students tell me that there are little kids now who are asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll say, an influencer. Influencer. Not a fireman, a lawyer, a doctor, a preacher. I want to be an influencer. Gosh, I know we used to talk about public intellectuals, people, we hope anyway, that knew something who had something to say to the broader public. But now that element just kind of dropped out and it's all image. It's all brand. It's mm-hmm. are you an influencer? And there are these influencers that will rent out apartments that are very high priced. They don't even live in. And they'll do a photo shoot and they'll put it online as if they lived in these places because it's so impressive and they can influence people. Yep. Influence them with what, for what reason? So we have a lot of good, you know, we need to do a lot of good hard thinking about how to use social media. And part of it, part of the answer, I think, is just knowing when to say no, sure. just have times in the day when you're not on mediated communication maybe a day of the week once in a while. I have my students do a media abstention in one of the classes I teach where they go off an electronic communications medium for 10 days and see what it does to them And I'd say 95 percent of the time it's a significant wake-up call to people. I believe it that they are spending too much time in these media that's affecting their prayer life it's affecting their marriages and so on. And once they do it, when they return to that medium or to those media, they're chastened. They're much more careful about it. But everything about these media, just say, come on in, stay in. The algorithms are set up to hook you, to get the, uh, what is it? The dopamine going, the hits, you know? So you're, let's go to this. Let's go to the next thing. Let's go to the next thing. Never get offline. We're going to sell you everything. We're going to control you completely and uh you can't really be just spending time alone with your bible and praying you know and i mean a book the bible by yourself or in a bible study with no screens and taking it in and being leisurely and slowing down and not being distracted by those images and those ads Mm -hmm. because otherwise we cheapen our lives in many ways
1: I think it was John Piper who said something along the lines of the, the screen time option on our phone will show us that at the last day, our lack of prayers will not be because of a lack of time. Said something along, he said it much more poetic than that. but
2: well, That's right. Yes. Yeah. Or you might say, you know, if you come to the end of your life and, you know, you're about to die, how many people would say, I, I wish I spent more time on my phone? You know? okay. Probably not. I wish I'd spend more time playing video games, probably not. Right.
1: But when it comes to um, engaging, so we talk about doing, doing live and body with other people, getting off of our phones, getting off of uh, social media. When we're having the engagement with other people, uh, oftentimes, especially in a very polarized, uh, in some respects, uh, society that we live in, um, a number of hot topics come up, and you should vote a book. On talking about hot topic issues, um, what you say, um, it, "How? What might be some a couple of steps um, that maybe you talked about in, in your in your book, Fire in the Streets,' um, where if when we're engaging in these issues, how might we do
2: that well?" Well, one thing you need to do is not resort to talking points and slogans. So we hear a lot of terms like systemic racism, white privilege, white supremacy, intersectionality. And it's good to define what is meant by that and how you might verify whether those things exist or if they exist, what to do with them. But typically, if you're thinking about Twitter or Facebook or television news, there's just not the time, the room to develop those ideas carefully. A lot of people are just triggered by words and then they start attacking someone. Mm -hmm. So, uh, especially after the the riots of 2020, I realized I needed to write a book about uh, racial relations in America, how the American system has dealt with questions of race and so on and look at the founding ideals of the country. So, I wrote a book on it and I hope people will read the book, because you need time to ask the questions properly and then to answer the questions properly. So something like systemic racism, well, what does that mean? Uh, Does it exist anymore? If it does, how can it be addressed? Mm -hmm. How could it be verified? Mm -hmm. But these terms, which are very heavy weighted terms, Uh, are often thrown around without very much sophistication uh, or without any way of refuting or verifying what they're saying. So I'm just an old philosopher, you know, so when I get concerned about something, I write a book and I hope people will read it. It usually takes a book to make several significant points about important topics. You really need to Think it through and fire in the streets is about 200 pages of text and about 500 footnotes about very controversial issues but i hope people will read it uh, jp moreland wrote one of the endorsements and he said if you don't like what wrote says then refute it you know don't just say i don't like it refute it you got some arguments to deal with here
1: yeah and again all that the reputation, all that, ideally would take place in person. Again, getting away from the phone and, and having the, the, uh, these in-person conversations. Um, and that's where, that's where the ideal dialogue takes place, no, not online. Yeah.
2: reading, discussing. Um, I'm a teacher. I love the classroom, so I enjoy presenting ideas and seeing what the students have to say about them. They might disagree. That's fine. Sure. I can respond to what they say. You know, it's interaction, it's dialogue, and that's often how we come to the truth of situations. Jesus was, was always challenging people and uh, sometimes upsetting them with his questions and his mm-hmm. ideas. Of course, we can't claim the mantle the genius of Jesus, but we can at least listen well, ask good questions, try to unpack ideas fairly, uh, love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mm-hmm. Of our neighbors as ourselves by engaging their minds in a civil fashion.
1: Well, Dr. Gohei, I want to thank you again uh, for for talking through some of those uh, questions. Um, where can people uh, go to find out more about you, about your work, about the seminary? Yeah,
2: well, I appreciate you asking. I teach at Denver Seminary. I lead an apologetics master's degree. And you can find out about that at denverseminary.edu. I have a personal webpage douglasgrotheis.com. I'm also on Facebook. And I badmouth Twitter, but I am on Twitter. I try to make the most of it uh, at Doug Grotheis. And I just started a podcast. We've got about five episodes out. It's called Truth Tribe. Truth yeah. Tribe, it's put out by Salem Media. So I engage these media. I try to do it carefully. I don't try to overtax them. Sure. Um, you know, I'm still at heart, a teacher, preacher, mentor, that's what I love the best. But you know, if I can give a tweet, and then somebody goes and reads a good book, or listens to a good sermon or a good lecture because of that tweet or because of that Facebook post, then I've channeled people in a direction where they can go deeper.
1: Dr. Hi, thank you again for being with us.
2: Well, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for listening to another episode of Running the Race podcast find out more information about our church and our ministry, or for more episodes, be sure to visit our website, www.fbcg.net. If you're listening on iTunes or Google Podcast. a positive review would really help us out a lot. Thanks for taking the time to do that. If you found the podcast to be interesting and helpful, recommending us to a friend or family member you think would benefit from listening would be a great thing. We look forward to seeing you again next time. And once again, thanks, God bless, and goodbye for now.